There's a really good scene earlier on that we forgot to mention where uh, Ramirez tells uh, Connor McLeod, you know, I've had, you need to leave this woman. I've had, I've had women in the past and they grow old and die and while we cannot, and who wants to stick around and have that? It's a painful loss. And that sort of element of sorrow, the sort of curse, as you will, is um, really something kind of similar to what Anne Rice does in her interview with the vampire uh, Lestat books. And that living forever, there's a lot of these great things about it, but it's also a curse. All your friends die except for you. So, I mean, maybe that's why immortals seek uh, companionship with other immortals. I don't know. Just trying to think out loud here. But um, it is confusing as why why they wouldn't run around killing people just to protect themselves and why would they make friends at all, really, I, I think is sort of uh, a fair point. But uh, I think Sean Connery, uh, again, is great fun in this role. I think he has more charisma than Christopher Lambert. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. The theme song to the sequel cast is performed and written by Mark with the Sea. Check out his latest album, Motherfuckers Be Bullshitting, at markwiththesea.bandcamp.com. Now we return you to the sequel cast. From another time comes a man of great power. Talk funny, Nash. Where are you from? Lots of different places. A warrior of incredible strength. You've the devil in you. We've been kinsmen 20 years. Connor McLeod was my kinsman. I don't know who you are. Because you were born different, men will fear you, try to drive you away. Hello and welcome to the Sequel Cast. The Sequel Cast is a show that talks about movies in a franchise, one movie at a time. I'm your host, Matt, and uh, we're starting a new franchise this time out. We are talking about the Highlander series of films over the next uh, several weeks. And uh, this episode, we're covering the original film Highlander, directed by Russell Mulcahy, a screenplay by Gregory Wyden, Peter Bellwood, and Larry Ferguson, based on a story by Gregory Wyden, starring Christopher Lambert, Sean Connery, and Clancy Brown, with music by Queen and Michael Kamen. The cinematographer is Gary Fisher, and... Um, this film, uh, you know, had a budget of $16 million and in the United States didn't do very well. Only made $12 million, uh, $12.8 million, but uh, did really well overseas. Um, we have a website, SequelCast.com, or you can find us on Facebook. Just look up SequelCast. And the theme song you just heard was by Mark with the C. Check out his stuff at markwiththec.bandcamp.com. With me is Thrasher. Hey, everybody. And we are, like I said, talking about Highlander. This is a I, film that I, is loved by many. I, I would just say many. I mean this this is this is the cult classic of cult classics. Yes, and sure. yet it it has gone on at least it, you know during the nineties went on to have a considerable amount of mainstream success. I think I've, I've actually been looking forward to doing this film series in, in, in for quite a while. Uh, actually, probably since you started the sequel cast. Wow! And all I can say is now that we're finally doing it. There can be only fun. <laughs> I mean, you know, 
chances are if you have a friend that has like replica swords and one of them is framed on his wall, he's probably into Highlander. (laughs) (laughs) This whole thing is like, I don't know. Highlander is such a weird combination of, I'd almost say historical fiction, but that's not exactly true. But you have sort of fantasy, you have history, you have romance, you have uh, some science fiction stuff in there, kind of, especially in some of the films, yeah. So uh, why don't we get start to talking about it? Uh, so this is directed by Russell Mulcahy, who, uh, this was his first like big film. He's an Australian director, but since then he's directed other things like Highlander 2, The Quickening. Uh, a recent theatrical film he directed was uh, Resident Evil, the third one. Um, let me look up and see. That one's called Resident Evil Extinction, and the one that came out in 2007 set in the desert. But he's done a lot of direct-to-video stuff, but he also did music videos, uh, and he also directed the first music video to air on MTV, uh, Video Killed the Radio Star. All oh, the Buggles, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, he's well known for a lot of that stuff, too. You know, I, I, I first heard that song on the wireless back in 52. <laughs> oh, what? Oh. You know, th- this is, this is going to be, I think, going to be a real nostalgia trip series of episodes. I think so, too. Um, so, I mean, this stars Christopher Lambert, plays the. Connor McLeod, and um, although he was born in the United States, his father was a French diplomat, and he was raised in uh, Switzerland, and then later France, and so his accent is very peculiar. Wouldn't well, you say? It kind of it kind of lends it. It kind of really works for the character. I mean, it it makes him seem a little bit out of time. Yeah. And I mean, just the way he speaks, it's the same in every movie, pretty much. And the way he laughs, he's like, ha, ha, ha. I'm Gavin McLeod. Like, kind of like that. I'm Connor McLeod of the Clan McLeod. Connor McLeod, yes. Yeah, and his uh, his accent in this one's pretty strong, because he, he's younger in this film. And he has a nearsightedness condition, I think. Well, he, that... ha- he has some sort of... He has some sort of eye trouble. Uh, I, I'll admit, I don't. I don't know what it is, but his his eyesight has been eyesight eyesight has been uh, steadily deteriorating since the late eighties. Uh, how right. far it's progressed, I don't know. But you know, I, I if if it's curable or treatable, I certainly hope he's getting the medical attention he needs. I mean, he's he he's a, he's a really fun actor who's done a lot of interesting things, and I, I'd hate to see uh, I'd hate to see him stop. Yeah, I think the first movie I ever saw uh, Christopher Lambert in was uh, as Raiden, the Thunder God, in the first Mortal Kombat movie. Oh, he was great in that. I know yeah. they wanted to get him for the second one, but he had uh, he unfortunately had other commitments. And the budget on the second one, they were really doing that one on the cheap, too. The Mortal Kombat uh, Annihilation, I think, was the title of that film. Well, one of his commitments was to get paid. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, we can talk about some of the other, or the cast members for a second. Of course, Sean Connery, I think, is the, by far the most famous person in this cast. Mm, yeah. And, was uh, it a real, a real coup to get him for this? Well, I think so, and the part of it was that he wasn't... They had to do all his filming, I think, over the course of, like, five or six days. Maybe, like, one or two weeks, and sort of cram them all in there. And uh, Sean Connery seems to have a lot of fun in this film. Playing Juan Sanchez Villalobos Ramirez. <laughs> yeah. And now would this would this be the the first film where where uh, Sean Connery would because that's the thing Sean Connery only has one voice and it's the Sean yeah. Connery voice but he's played all these different nationalities like because like hello I'm Darby O'Gill and then hello I'm a Russian sub commander 
And, yeah. uh, you know, hello, I am a Spaniard from ancient Egypt, you know. Right, I think at this one his character is supposed to be Egyptian, but he's working for the king of Spain. Yes, well, well, he's immortal, and immortals tend to get around. So wherever, whatever nation you started in, it's not the nation you end up 500 years down the line. And aside from really launching Christopher Lambert's career uh, in, a, in a fashion, this was also a, a big coup for uh, Clancy Brown as the villain, the Kurgan. Mm. Very sort of creepy bad guy. Uh, and of course, you know, the music, uh, the songs are by Queen, and they did a little bit of the score, and the rest of the score is done by Michael Kamen. But actually, uh, Highlander never had an official soundtrack album at the time, but you had the Queen album, A Kind of Magic, that yeah, featured most of the, most of the music the songs. Is, is lifted from that, and uh, most of the cues are uh, inspired by it as well. Right. And the later, um, there was a later soundtrack release kind of combining the scores of uh, the first three Highlander films that later came out on CD. Oh, and I'm going to say, you you could not find a better soundtrack for not a 1980s urban fantasy film than the music of Queen. Well, Queen did this. Except maybe Flash, did Bowie. Queen did this and Queen did Flash Gordon as well, right? Well, well, in the case of Flash Gordon, they were actually hired to specifically to do the score. In the case of, of this film, as I understand it, the film rate, the filmmakers just got the rights to most of the uh, Bit of Magic album. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure about that, but all right. Uh, so with Highlander, you know, it starts off... Or let's talk about when we first saw this film. Um, I didn't see this until I was in high school, and I, I had rented it. I had friends that were into the TV series, but I never watched the TV show at the time, because I guess I couldn't figure out how to program a VCR. I'm sure it would have been a TV show I would have liked, but uh, the live-action series I'm talking about here. But uh, anyway, I rented this movie from the video store and just really liked it, really got into it. I don't think I had really heard Queen much uh, uh, you know, before seeing this film, other than Bohemian Rhapsody and, Rain- and uh, Wayne's World. So... Uh, what about you? Do you remember when you first saw Highlander Thrasher? Uh, well, if if you were into science fiction and fantasy in the late 80s and early 90s, as I was, this movie was inescapable. Uh, yeah. Highlander and, uh, Highlander and Highlander 2, you could not... Like, they, they were almost constantly on cable and on late-night programming blocks, and... I I actually like I I have been Highlander had so saturated parts of my childhood that I'm not actually sure when I first saw it. I'm not sure when I first saw it in its entirety. I'm not sure when I first just saw some scenes from it. But Highlander was part of the background the background noise of my youth. Hmm. And you know the movie starts. You're talking about the '80s with with kind of like a it's not officially WWF, but it's something certainly like that. It's a pro wrestling match. In there, yeah. As I, as, I uh, as I understand it, immortals are pretty damn good at wrestling for some reason. Well, they're just watching. Uh, Connor McCloud's just watching a wrestling match, and you know, even though the movie has sort of an explanatory quote, kind of explaining um, about the immortals, they don't really get into it that much. It's you know narrated by Sean Connery. And I'd like to say the reason why that voiceover sounds so echoey is because Sean Connery recorded it while in a bathroom over the phone. And that gives it... Actually, uh, speaking of the narration and such, one thing that I love about this film is that there 
is so so little exposition, so little explanation for what is going on. Uh, you know, th- there's not a tremendous amount of lore given about the immortals. You know, you you know all you really need to know that there are immortals and that they are destined to battle each other until only one remains. And I I think that that's so that's so refreshing. Having having read a lot of urban fantasy and just a lot of fantasy in general, uh, and, and in films as well, those can get so bogged down with lore. And thankfully, these films would not get bogged down with lore until the second one. But that's for another episode. Right, and they do a, do a bit of explaining, but you're right, not too much. It still is enough to leave um, to your imagination about the history of these characters. And uh, So as they're watching the wrestling match, Connor McLeod is having flashbacks of uh, when he was growing up in uh, Scotland with, with the as part of Connor McLeod, the Clan McLeod, as he likes to say several times in this film. But before you get... Uh, one of the many flashback sequences, you have a sword fight in a parking garage with a guy that does backflips a lot. And uh, these two characters duel. And you get to see what happens when uh, one of these immortals gets decapitated. You get to see the quickening in which lightning overtakes their body and uh, things around them explode in glorious fashion. What's well, a tremendous? The quickening is, is, is a tremendous release of, uh, of of energy, and as as I, as I understand it, that's that's basically your when you slay another immortal like that through the decapitation, you're taking all of their essence into yourself. Right, and I don't think they really explain that in this one, or if it is, I might have missed it. But I think yeah, don't aren't you supposed to gain like their skills and their knowledge and all these things? Well, I know you that, cut off the that head. I know that that was like part of the lore, especially in the in, in the the television series. But that doesn't exactly come across. If, if that's what happens, it it, it kind of it doesn't exactly come across in the movie. I mean, with with all the potential immortals that that McCloud and, and all the other characters have potentially killed, you know, down the centuries. You'd think that there'd be almost nothing they couldn't do or nothing they didn't know simply because there's so much experience packed in. There's, there's so much experience packed into a, a, a normal human's brain. Imagine how much experience would be packed into an immortal's brain. Like, it, it, it would. I guess. It, I, I guess they would. If you really are getting their memories, experiences, and skills, every every immortal would be Batman. <laughs> Yeah, I was watching this with my wife, and uh, she thought that the story in this was kind of confusing. And I said, well, this movie is actually more straightforward than some of the sequels. And she was kind of surprised at that, but I think that's true relatively. You do get flashbacks back and forth, but I don't think the main storyline is overly complicated. Um, but you do get a lot of uh, you get backstory of Connor McCloud or the Clan McCloud, and... Um, and and even then, uh, like you said, Thrasher, they don't get into huge details of when this guy, you know, how the guy was born. You don't spend 30 minutes with him in the Scottish Highlands with his clan. You see him, like, uh, right before they're about to go into bot- battle. Well, well, it's pretty sweet. I mean, you don't, you don't get a lengthy, cumbersome origin story. You don't get, uh, you don't get... 
an, an overload of lore. You don't get a bunch of stuff about prophecies. You just get some general back, some just very general background about who this guy is and where he's from. Yeah, you see that he has a girlfriend or a wife. They don't really specify that, but she gives him a kiss as he leaves off to battle. And um, they are fighting against uh, the McLeod clans, fighting against uh, Clan Murdoch, and uh, led by uh, the Kurgan, played by Clancy Brown, who I really like uh, his uh, costume in uh, throughout the film, but especially in this um, beginning uh, Scottish Highland sequence. He has this neat helmet that's like a, oh, what would you say? It looks like an animal uh, skeleton, skull, right? Yeah, it's like the skull of, of, well, I guess like, I would say it's like the skull of a great cat, but it's clearly not any kind of cat. Like it's, it's like, it, there's nothing on earth he could have killed to get that skull. Uh, it's, it's, so it's gotta be uh, customized. Sure, I mean, it's very frightening looking. And Connor McLeod, you know, played by Christophe Lambert, is very frustrated because none of the the enemy Murdoch clan is attacking him. They're sort of clearing the way so we can have a one-on-one with the Kurgan. And the, Kur- the Kurgan uh, really beats the shit out of him, really, like, stabs him in the chest and it appears that he dies. But then it turns out he goes back to uh, the, the next day... You know, he gets up, he's he's not killed after all, so it appears, and he returns to his village, and his whole village thinks that he's a, a sorcerer, because he has some kind of black magic or something, and he's exiled from his own village. His own wife spits at him. They, uh... Well, I mean, they did see him get run through with a sword. And, yes. And you, you don't survive that, especially not in the Middle Ages. But it's nice that his friend tries to stick up for him. Although that friend isn't really like a big character, but it's a, it's an interesting little moment. You see he's exiled and getting beat up uh, from the village, from people that used to be his clansmen, you know. And in a similar fashion, he gets beat up in present day. And this part is kind of stretches things a bit, where he decapitates this guy's head. There's cops all around. He's trying to escape in his car. Connor McLeod is. And there's like a dozen cop cars waiting for him outside of the parking garage entrance. And how do they know that he's the guy that cut off the head? But they're beating him up in a similar fashion as he was beat up in uh, in the 1500s in the Scottish Highland by his own clansmen. He's being beat up by police, the very people that are supposed to be protecting the innocent. Although he did murder someone, but it was, it was self-defense, I guess, sword fights. Self-defense with a sword, but I guess that's the thing. In, in the modern, if the modern in the modern age, if someone's killed with a sword, there is clearly some sort of premeditation going on because no one just walks around with the sword. Right. I mean, I'm guessing like this was caught on security cameras. I guess so. That's how the cops knew about it. And I, I will say the modern day storyline with the police trying to track him down in his uh, romantic relationship with um, this, uh, what is she, a foren- she's a detective, kind of forensic investigator, who also happened to have written a best-selling book on metallurgy and the history thereof. The present-day stuff I don't think is, effect- is as effective as the various historical background sequences. What do you think? Uh, I, well, well, you know, the, the, the stuff in the past certainly is more, more atmospheric, 
uh, and, and that really heightens the drama that you see. But I think that that's simply because it's it's the past. It's an air. It's a period that we immediately start to romanticize and associate with epic fantasy. But once it's in the modern, once you have scenes in the modern day, well, now now that's urban fantasy, and and atmosphere and drama don't work quite the same way. I mean, frankly, frankly, I like the the modern day stuff only because it's 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 pointless to have an immortal that's like twenty, thirty years old. Because then he's just like anyone else. For for an immor- for a character who's immortal to truly matter, you've got to focus on after he's lived well beyond the lifespan of a normal human being. Hmm. I think you're right. Although, oh, something I did want to point out: uh, I've been reading a a marvelous uh, a marvelous uh, book on screenwriting called uh, called How Not to Write a Screenplay. I know it sounds like I'm about to bash the movie, but I'm not. Okay. But one of the but uh, m- most of, most of the book is in fact about how not to write a screenplay. But one thing that I thought was very fascinating is that in in this book, uh, they reproduce the first ten pages of the original shooting script for Highlander, and that's used as an example of good economical screenwriting because within the first five pages of that script, we set up the character. We, the, the, well, we uh, the character is set up. His personality and attitudes are set up. His history is set up. Everything is set up that you then you need from for that for that great story, and it's all done in five pages and with a minimum of exposition. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I mean, it does hit the ground running, and uh, it goes back to the past where Connor McLeod is um you know sort of exiled but he he's found another lady friend he's living by himself and as he's flirting with his lady friend apparently out of the blue comes uh Juan Ramirez Villalobos oh sorry Juan Sanchez Villalobos Ramirez called Ramirez for short played by Sean Connery dressed in uh very fine costumes i think well you know like if if I like Sean Connery, I would love to see like if you take Sean Connery's costume and make it just a little bit tatty, a little bit worn, he would be the perfect Don Quixote. Yeah, it does look certainly. I think Sean Connery is Don Quixote. He's retired from acting now, but that that would be really smart casting for that sort of a story. Um. And what, isn't Terry Gilliam still trying to get his uh, Man of La Mancha? Or what is that called? He has a take uh, on Don the, Quixote. The man who killed Don Quixote. Uh, the, that's right, the man who killed Don Quixote um, uh, is, in the works. As far for a long, as I long know, time. As, as far as I know, like it, it, it like with like t- Terry Gilliam, he he's not a director that uh, that abandons a project. The project may never get made, but but he never abandons it. So I I, I suspect. If, if he could get that movie made, he would. And I don't see why not. I would love to see a Terry Gilliam's take on the character of Don Quixote. Right. And um, there's a really good documentary on that that I can't remember the title of. But uh, anyway, back to Highlander. So you, uh, the whole point of Ramirez is supposed to, he tell he gives a bit of the lore and he does, there's a lot of training montages. But he explains that him, uh, himself, and uh, Connor McLeod are both immortals, 
And that means they can never die unless another immortal cuts off their head. And it gets a bit... I think it's a little bit convoluted with the concept of the game, right? Um, kind of. I'm yeah. I mean, it's like the 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 the, the immortals killing each other in any version of a Highland of, of any Highlander thing I've seen. The, the the immortals killing each other. It never seems particularly motivated. It might as well just flat out be a curse. But the idea of the game is to give some sort of motivation that it says at one point. In a in a city many miles away, as uh, Sean Connery's character says, all of the uh, immortals will be drawn to one location and fight for the prize, which means uh, killing all the other Highlanders except for themselves. And the one survivor, there will be only one, gets the prize. But they don't reveal what the prize is uh, until the very end. Well, you gotta wonder what what does an immortal what, what does an immortal want? I mean, you can already live forever. So you already have the possibility of being able to accumulate limitless wealth just by hanging around long enough. Uh-huh. A limitless experience. You can you can travel the world. You could travel the world by walking, because you'd never have to worry about. Oh well, it, it could. It doesn't matter that it might take ten years to walk from this place to China. Uh, I'll still be alive and just as fit and healthy as I was when I started. So yeah, like the only thing I could think that a mortal an immortal would really want would be to not be immortal and have a sensible death and not have to worry about being hunted down and killed all the time. Right. And I we um and they do reveal what the prize is at the end. I think the answer is actually kind of rewarding. Like I was kind of satisfied with the answer. But at the same point, you know, once the guy once uh, one of the immortals wins and gets the prize, how can you do any sequels? Isn't that the ultimate question here? Well, that question was answered right. in the second film. Kind of, yeah. But it's like, oh, there happens to be other immortals. Um, I mean, that's where it all kind of falls apart, I think, how they keep it. That there has to only be one. And that's where I think the mythology gets very confusing in this film. But they don't spend that much time on it. It's enough for this one story. And... um I was watching a documentary on uh, Highlander 2, The Quickening, and they, the producers talk about that had they known Highlander would become a franchise, they never would have ended the first film the way they had. Because the story of the first film is such a nice, tight package that it doesn't leave that many openings Which, for a though, sequel. I, I, really, I really prefer. I would uh-huh. rather have an amazing, self-contained movie and a bunch of shitty sequels than a movie that forces in a gateway for a sequel... But then you still get shitty sequels. I would rather have that that self-contained narrative. Interesting. Yeah, because nowadays they launch things expecting to already get a trilogy out of the gate. And we've seen examples where that hasn't paid off. Where Things like uh, The Golden Compass, um, Lemony Snicket, Bridge to Terabithia. Uh, yeah, everybody's looking for the next Matrix, the next Lord of the Rings, the next, next Harry Star Potter. Wars. Yeah, next. No Star one's Wars. looking for the first of something. Nope. Got to have that trilogy box set. Um. So I really enjoy this uh, kind of over-the-top fight sequence in the past, where um, Sean Connery's character gets in a fight with the Kurgan and ends up dying. It's pretty epic in that they're in this tower and parts of the tower start falling apart. There's a lot of neat photography in there. 
And um, although I think I could have, the fight could have been a bit longer. Like I don't quite get why Sean Connery seems to yield at one point. Well, you know that's that's kind of the the thing though. Like you, you got to think that there are some immortals that just get tired of fighting. Mm. You know, get tired of being hunted. Get tired of you know decide that the game isn't worth it, and then just decide to 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 let themselves be killed just to to, to end to end that cycle. And that could be what's that could maybe what's going on there. Although that that was always something that, that I never quite understood. If if the immortals are all destined to kill each other, why then does Ramirez train McLeod? Is is he sort of doing it out of the goodness of his heart? Is is he trying to set it up so that he can have a fair fight with this guy later? Mm. It, it seems, yeah, I mean, it he, could be, he could be. He could be. Because if, if I was an right. immortal and I was really after this game. I if I've sensed another immortal, I wouldn't meet him, train him, and then go our separate ways. I'd sneak up to him before I'd sneak up on him before he knew what the hell he really was and just murder him. Yeah, no, I think you got a point, and I mean, also, I don't know. I think immortals uh, being friends kind of makes sense because who else has that much life experience, literally? And uh, there's a really good scene earlier on that we forgot to mention, where uh, Ramirez tells uh, Connor McCloud. You know, I've had. You need to leave this woman. I've had. I've had women in the past, and they grow old and die, and while we cannot, and who wants to stick around and have that? It's a painful loss, and the sort of element of sorrow, the sort of curse, as you will, is um, really something kind of similar to what Anne Rice does in her interview with the vampire uh, Lestat books. And that living forever, there's a lot of these great things about it, but it's also a curse. All your friends die except for you. So I mean, maybe that's why immortals seek. Uh, companionship with other immortals i don't know just trying to think out loud here but um it is confusing as why why they wouldn't run around killing people just to protect themselves and why would they make friends at all really i I think is sort of uh, a fair point but uh, i think sean connery uh again is great fun in this role i think he has more charisma than christopher lambert he does really get a chance to cut loose and i actually I actually attribute that to like the the legacy of the of the British stage. I mean, he, he's he's almost treating it like like a pantomime role, you know, uh-huh. a, a, a you know much more flashy than normal, more over the top than normal. A bit, uh, you know, just everything about the character is, is heightened in that kind of theater, and he's bringing it and he's bringing that to this character in this film, and it just makes him stand so high above the rest of of the people. Though I still like I still like Lambert. I like I like that he. He kind of comes off as a bit quiet and brooding at his immortality. No, oh, he's certainly brooding, that's for sure. And um, But, I mean, the one thing that's really strange is you have the scene where that it's on the grounds of where Connor McCloud lives at this kind of side tower, but Connor McCloud doesn't show up to help his friend as his friend is getting killed. Like, I guess he's on vacation. He's not there at his own castle. that he li- Here's a little, little hut that he lives in. I kind of would have liked to see Connor McCloud run in into that scene and try and help Ramirez and then get knocked. Maybe him getting knocked unconscious, maybe that'd be too cheesy, but I don't know. Well, him seeing his mentor killed would give him, a, which would, would give him, and I think thereby the audience, more of a personal stake in the inevitable battle to, to come. Yeah. So, I mean, it is, it, it is a very strange thing that he's not in that scene. But regardless, um, 
you know, Connor McCloud uses Ramirez's sword, which is a Japanese sword, where the steel has been folded upon itself hundreds of times, a very uh, a Masamune, um, very strong sword. Oh, actually, now that I'm trying to remember, what era is that where Ramirez dies? They don't say. I mean, that's another thing about this movie being subtle in some respects, is it doesn't flash up the date on the screen every time there's a different flashback. Which which I do like. Because, I, I, uh-huh. you know, date, for all we know, dates just might... Because in a lot of ways, dates would be totally meaningless to an immortal. But at, at the same time, I mean, you know, Japan... It, it wasn't until relatively recently, historically speaking, that Japan had its ports open to where you could trade and get that kind of a sword. You know, like the, how Ramirez got that sword, got to Japan and got that sword, like, that could be a whole movie in and of itself. Sure. I mean, that's one of the brilliant things about the Highlander concept, is all these immortals uh, living, you know, basically living different lives throughout the different time periods. The The storytelling possibility is almost limitless in, in far as where you can go in history and what kind of stories you can do and failed romances, crazy action sequences. I mean, they've done a lot of Highlander novels, you know, based on these films and spinoffs of these films and the TV show and comic books and anime and TV series that we'll talk about in later episodes. But um, it's a very, very strong concept. Um, So after all this flashback stuff, you get a lot more in present day with the romantic relationship um, between... Connor McCloud and Brenda, the detective, who's also has written a book in metallurgy, which is a really forced coincidence, I think. Well, you know, maybe metals are her hobby, or, or you know, her background could have been in forensics, and that could have led to a greater study of metals. I mean, did you see any chemistry between them? Did you believe when they had sex after he, you know, stabs himself with a, a dagger and is like, "Hey, look, I'm okay. I'm an immortal." I thought that was kind of weird. Well, I don't know. Well, I guess in, if if I was if I was in a relationship with somebody, and they said, "Hey, look, I'm an immortal," stabbed themselves and it didn't kill them, I wouldn't want it's it's I wouldn't want to immediately have sex with them. I would be more fascinated that this person's immortal. Like that would that would dominate everything. Asking them about history, about the whole immortal life process. I, I don't think it would lead immediately to sex. Yeah, there's a later sequence where Connor meets one of his immortal friends, a Castigier, played by Hugh Corshi, who um, listeners might recognize Hugh Corshi had a bit part in Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace as Captain Panaka. Um, oh, believe it or not. Uh, so in The Phantom Menace, they have a, a soldier guy that kind of run, runs around and helps them on uh, Naboo. All right. In the city. He's, a, um, he's, Afri- he's black. He's a black guy, and he's in uniform. It's not a huge character in the movie. I don't blame you for not remembering who he is. But he was uh, younger when he did this role, and he still does a lot of acting today. Um, and Hugh Corshi turned down the opportunity to reprise the role of Captain Panaka in uh, Attack of the Clones, because they did not offer him enough money. So... Um, but anyway, he meets his friend and he says, oh, do you remember, you know, back when you were a nobleman and all this crazy, when you had too much to drink the one night? And you get this flashback that's kind of humorous where Connor McCloud uh, is fighting another, uh, a nobleman in a duel and keeps on getting shot over and over and over again, but raises up and tries to fight him. 
Yeah, that's seem- little immortality for slapstick right there. Yeah, I don't. I think the joke is okay, but it just kind of keeps on going. He gets shot like eight or nine times. Um, Although, actually, here, here's a question though, because because that scene shows beyond a shadow of a doubt that the only thing that's going to kill an immortal is total decapitation, most likely done by another immortal. Do you think yeah. that drains a lot of the potential tension out of the movie since we now know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the only thing that can be a threat to, to McCloud is another immortal? Well, Ramirez says that too, though, in that you have to get your head cut off. I don't know if you have to get your head cut off by an immortal specifically, but I assume you do. Um, I, I mean, I think having it be so silly right before... The, the climax of the film kind of takes something away from the tension because, you know, one minute Connor meets Castigar and the next minute Castigar gets killed by the Kurgan. I mean, you don't really get to know Castigar as a character. But it's just sort of showing that the game is getting narrowed down and um, you don't really see any other immortals in this movie besides Connor McCloud, uh, Castigar, the Kurgan, and Ramirez. There isn't a shitload of immortals in this movie uh, like you'd see later in the TV series, like every week, they got to fight a new immortal, right? Um, so, I think the present day stuff think, suffers. Actually, I think I think that is a mark in in the the movie's uh, favor because in in a lot of urban fantasy, whether it be on television, in novels, graphic novels, uh, mm-hmm. movies, any, any medium, there all too often comes a point where whatever the supernatural stuff it is, it seems totally overpopulated to the point where you can't imagine how any of this stuff stays secret. Because because you only get a handful of immortals in Highlander, it, it helps it helps maintain the reality of it helps maintain the reality of, of the movie. You know, these these people, these beings are rare, uh, so they probably don't run into each other all that often. Uh, yeah. And you know, few, hardly anyone's going to know they even exist. You know, as opposed as opposed to like a lot of like uh, urban fantasy, particularly involving vampires, where you're like, how the hell can this many hundreds of these things be living in this one city and no one notices? Well, yeah, and uh, one flashback I think that works better earlier in the film is um, as a cover, Connor McCloud goes by the name Russell Nash, and he's a antiques dealer and has this huge apartment where all these antiques from different times are stored. I absolutely and, uh, love that. Yeah, and as his secretary, um, he has this woman, Rachel, who actually was a little girl he saved in World War Two. And you get a scene of him fighting a Nazi and, and saving her and stuff, and that's kind of a nice scene. And there, you know, just sort of stressing the vast... Uh, historical experiences immortals would have had. Um, but towards the end of the movie, the narrative uh, gets a bit more typical in that the romantic interest, Brenda, gets captured by the Kurgan, and he takes her on a wild spree through the city and runs over people and all this crazy stuff. And the Queen music used at this point uh, is really intense and driving, sort of heavy metal sounding that I think works with the Kurgan. Because in the present day, Kurgan shaves his head uses, like, clothespins to tie up a, a gash that he had from way back when, when Ramirez was fighting him. And it's just a, a, an intimidating look that's totally different than how he looked in the Scottish Highland scenes in the beginning. But I think it still works. He looks punk rock. 
Uh, He's an immortal that really knows how to change with the times. Yeah. (laughs) And Clancy Brown, I mean, he's a big guy, and the voice he uses is such a deep, growling voice that he's used it to great effect in lots of cartoons, uh, lots of live-action stuff, too. I mean, he's also, like, in Starship Troopers as a good guy, which is kind of weird. But he's typically cast as villains, I think, for a lot of things. And I mean, it's no wonder, just he has that really deep, rich voice. He's scary looking in this film. Uh, <laughs> I mean, don't you think he comes off as an intimidating villain? No, he's terrifying. He's a he's a person that knows he could live forever and therefore doesn't give a fuck about anything that's going on around him. And that, I mean, that is terrifying. Did you like the... Uh... Oh, uh, one thing Ramirez explained earlier in the film that we neglected to mention. So not only do immortals outlive people, but they are unable to have children. Which, well, well, you know, that right there helps to explain why there aren't that many immortals. Because if immortals (laughs) reproduce, you would assume their children would also be immortal. And that, you know, that that would skyrocket their population. If you're... If you're if, if you're always going to be re- relatively young and healthy and you're never going to die, you're going to have a hell of a lot of kids. And you know, according to this film, uh, you're just sort of born as an immortal, I guess. Like they don't really get into that much either. Just well, sort again, of, you no, know, no complicated origin story. The exactly, just, it's just kind of are. Like, yeah, you just kind of are, and there's not that many of them. And that's a very clean uh, explanation compared to what we get uh, in the sequels. <laughs> To say the least, um, you know. Sometimes you know, with as you mentioned, Thrasher, the less you explain something, the more intriguing it is, and it can you can kind of let your imagination run wild. Well, why is that guy born a born an immortal? Why why is this? And having that room to to sort of dream about origins and things about these characters uh, makes them more memorable, makes them more special. And it's when you start explaining things too much and give an answer to every little nitpicking question that you kind of lose a bit of the magic. I think. Okay, uh, so what do you think about like the big fight scene at the end between... It's it's one of those nice, satisfying fight scenes. I mean, it's something the film's been building up to from the very beginning. I want mm-hmm. to see the Kurgan get his ass kicked. And, and, and you know, the, the Queen music. Oh, oh sure. It's like, it's it like, a- it it's adds like so watching much to the... the most amazing music video ever made. Uh-huh. It adds so much to the intensity, and they fight in a rooftop. They fall through the windows. They fight kind of in the part of this building where oh, you got all these yeah. windows in the background and the camera. Uh, I think the camera they literally had in a wheeled tripod that they just kind of like shoved across this warehouse back and forth. So you get these like weird kind of tracking shots in the middle of an action scene. Which uh, oh, it's awesome! It's so yeah, really cool. Look, so much yeah. physicality. And at the same time, uh, the way the fight scenes are filmed by director Russell Mulcahy, it's not like shots every second. You can tell what's happening in the fight scene. You can kind of sit back and admire the choreography. It's, uh... And uh, not to mention, you know, the transitions between present, the present day and the past um, flashback sequences are pretty cleverly done, too. It'll be like one sort of tracking shot kind of melds into the other. They do a close-up to the eyeball and then zoom out into the, the eyeball in past day. Uh, there's a lot of very clever transitions in this film. And so at the end, big fight. Who's going to win? Connor McCloud. That's not really a shocker, but it's uh, it's you get a nice bit of animation when the Kurgan dies. 
Because it's not just all these windows behind him exploding. You do get that. But you get these animated sort of monster shadows. And you can hear Connor screaming, I know everything. And it's a very extended uh, quickening sequence. Well, I mean, can you imagine, like, as, as I said, the Kurgan is an immortal who doesn't give a fuck. Can you imagine how many immortals he's killed in his lifetime? Sure. And who knows how old he really is? Right. Um, we we could be seeing the memories, skills, experiences, and essences of thousands of immortals pouring into McCloud all at once. I mean that that truly that that is a special effects sequence that truly needs to be the massive special effects sequence that we got. I just love all the windows blowing out in the background. It's so many like you get the cars in the car park in the beginning, which is okay. But well, yeah, but it's also the building physical. With, I mean, that's, that's it's physical, and the building with like all the windows. It's just to such a more epic scale. It feels that much more rewarding. And it's also he, practical. I mean, that's that's uh-huh. real glass, or at least real yeah. sugar glass. I mean, yeah. And like every every one of those things could cut you. Uh, so, what do you think about the the ending where you find out what the prize is, and that you get to be the immortal? The prize, after killing all the other immortals, presumably, he gets to become mortal himself, and he gets to have children, although he never has children. Well, yeah, well, well, mm, I, well I don't know. Yeah, I guess, uh, well, you know, I don't think, I don't think it's, I don't think it's, it's bad. Uh, like, I, I, in a, in a way, I think it, it is, it is kind of appropriate, because again, like, once, because as we said earlier in the podcast, what's, what's the only thing an, uh, an immortal can't potentially have? And that's a normal mortal life, and so now he gets to now he gets to experience the unique pleasures and experiences of of aging and and of of aging with someone. Hmm. Right. I think it's kind of a sweet sort of uh, ending, and they say, I mean, it's conveyed through a long voiceover by Ramirez, which that part's kind of weird, but it's nice to hear Sean Connery's voice again. It's, uh, you know, I mean, it's a little bit cheesy of an ending, but it's a, it's a happy ending. But I think that the prize is that they get to be mortal and they get to grow old and die with the, with someone, presumably, which uh, looks like he's with the same woman as in the beginning, as uh, Brenda, the uh, police investigator. It's kind of a nice, sweet sort of ending and ties things up neatly. But of course, you got to have sequels. Um... Let's take a second to talk about our sponsor. Uh, we got a few on SequelCast.com. Just pop over there. Uh, SequelCast.com is an Amazon.com affiliate. We, on the left side, you can see the link to Amazon. And if you click on it, next time you do some shopping, whatever you get, we get a little uh, percentage of that and it helps us out. You can also donate through us through PayPal through there. And um, we uh, also, SequelCast is featured on Stitcher Smart Radio. And Stitcher is an app or a software you can listen to on your computer, on your smartphone, where you can listen to SequelCast and lots of other podcasts on-the-go streaming. And if you sign up at um, stitcher.com, S-T-I-T-C-H-E-R.com, slash SequelCast, you get a chance to win $100 if you're a citizen of the United States of America. And... Uh, you get SequelCast automatically added as one of your favorite shows on there. So it's really convenient. If you don't want to spend forever downloading a podcast, get it through Stitcher at Stitcher.com. Uh, Listen so see- to us on Stitcher. 
Very good, Thrasher. Also, we uh, started something new. Uh, it's going to be eh, more or less on a monthly basis, I think. SequelCast is doing uh, commentaries from movies that you can listen to streaming at sequelcast.bandcamp.com, and we have a link to that through our website. And if those you want to down, fun to record. Oh yeah, we only done one of those so far, but we plan to do a lot more. And uh, don't give away all of our secrets. Well, and if you want to download uh, the movie commentaries, it'll cost you at least a dollar. You kind of name your price over at sequelcast.bandcamp.com. But you can listen to it streaming uh, for free. So I, I think that's a fair compromise as far as that goes. Don't you, Thrasher? Yes, I think so. It's a unique pricing model. Uh, definitely. Um, so uh, before we wrap things up, let's do our pitch a sequel game in which we pretend none of the other sequels to this film, in this case Highlander 1, existed. If we were to pitch a sequel to Highlander, what would we do? Um, I think if you were to do a a sequel to Highlander pretending there were no other sequels, I would have it be uh, be a spinoff called Ramirez, uh, starring Sean Connery, about talk about his kind of doomed romance with the Japanese uh, woman he talks about, his one real true love, and he has to watch her die and how sad that is and whatever adventures in Japan Ramirez must have had. As a white person in medieval Japan, among the missionary, among the Christian missionaries, you you might assume, or no, it's not that late, so it'd be before then. But you know, what kind of a story is that there? I think it'd be very interesting to be in the sort of an Asian setting, which is different for Highlander, and uh, the Sean Connery character is so uh, entertaining. Just to see him starring in a in a spinoff, I think would have been a lot of fun. Thrasher. Yeah, that that character certainly does deserve his own movie. Uh, okay, if I were to pitch, if I were to pitch a sequel, uh, you know, regarding disregarding all the ones we got, I would do a uh, Highlander to the Unraveling, and the premise behind mm. this is it take it takes place uh, ten, fifteen, maybe even twenty years after the events of Highlander, um, maybe even slightly in the future. But the whole premise is uh, McCloud. You know, McCloud is mortal. McCloud is aging. However. Uh, you know, immortals have been around forever. There are some people who do know that the immortals exist, uh, and so, you know, there, there's like you know, as, as you said, you know, maybe security footage from that fight in the parking garage. So anyway, there's a cabal. There's a cabal of people, industrialist government types, the kind of people you'd have behind a conspiracy that know the immortals exist, and they want immortality. They want the immortality for themselves. So they they managed to track down McCloud. He's the only immortal they can find. Of course, because he's the only one that survived. They don't know that his immortality has gone away. And they try to they try to capture him, to study him, to find out what it is that made him immortal. Uh, and you also find out that, like, this group of people, they actually have, like, in a warehouse, they have the headless remains of countless immortals that they've been collecting, that they've been studying, uh, and trying to figure out what where the immortality comes from. And uh, they do manage to, and of course, and, and McCloud now, you know, he's not as badass as he used to be because now, even though he has all these skills, he now has an, an aging, frail, uh, failing body. So there's a there's a lot of tension right there. Well, eventually, they do get a hold of some of McCloud's tissue, uh, in, in uh, you know, because the, he he gets gunned down or severely uh, severely injured to the point where he's starting to di- to the point where he's like in a coma and starting to die. Well, they get some of that tissue. And they figure out what it, where the they figure out what causes the immortality. They synthesize it, and one of them 
tries it himself, but of course the process isn't perfect. He ends up with a flawed version of immortality. That you know, basically he has to quicken other humans to stay alive. He becomes like a weird energy van- decapitating energy vampire. The thing is, though, now there is another immortal on the earth. So that means that there must, there can be only one. So McCloud's immortality comes back. He de-ages all of his wounds heal, and he has to reclaim his mortality and and stop this cabal before they before you know they they unleash a population of decapitating energy vampires. You know, some of that stuff actually happens in uh, the sequel. We'll talk about next week, Highlander Two: The Quickening, but it, it unfolds. Yeah, <laughs> it unfolds in a different way, certainly in that film. And, um, all right, uh, we'll close things out with what you're watching, a segment where we talk about stuff we've been watching or video games or movies or whatever we've seen the what past you, week. What you what you watching? Very good. Uh, for me, I have, uh, had a chance to watch the movie in theaters, The Hunger Games. Now, I, I was not meaning to see this in the theater, but my wife and I were shopping and she had read all three books in quick succession, and her friend couldn't go with her, so I went with her to the movie. And um, the whole time, I was just really reminded of a a live-action Japanese movie I saw on a bootleg in the early 2000s called Battle Royale. But in any case, um, Hunger Games is about a, a future society, I guess, where they take children that live in all these different districts, and once a year have a male and a female from each district, uh, I think there's like 10 districts or something, so it might be like 20 boys and 20 girls all together fight in an arena, and it's sort of televised as a TV show. And the winner gets to bring back uh, lots of lots of food for their impoverished district. And um, that's sort of the, the premise behind it. And it was two and a half hours. I don't think it felt two and a half hours long, and I enjoyed some of the acting, especially from Woody Harrelson, but I was confused a bit by some of the politics uh, in it, and that's something that sort of gets uh, set up more in the later books, uh, from what I understand. But I liked it. I didn't I didn't love it, um, and I'm sure I would have liked it more if I had read the book. Uh, Thrasher, what's something you've seen this past week? Uh, well, you know, actually, I've been I've been kind of staying away from, from movies recently. I'm... I'm Watching the most recent series of the new Doctor Who, but I'm also watching uh, Spearhead from Space, the first John Pertry episode. What I've actually been into, I've been reading volume 10 of the collected Savage Sword of Conan, uh, which those are fantastic comics. Definitely pick up those collected volumes. Although volume 10 is about where the series started to go a bit doolally. Uh, now is that is that the Marvel comics that are reprinted by Dark Horse? Uh, yes, the original okay. episode of Conan was printed by Dark Horse. Uh, well, I'm sorry, it was printed by by Marvel. It was a Marvel magazine, but the the reprints are being done by a uh, Dark Horse, which Marvel now owns. Does Marvel own Dark Horse now? Uh, either that or uh, Dark Horse got the the rights. There's some some sort of complicated comic book economics going on there. Yeah, because that's pretty unusual with a different publisher publishing it, especially when it's something as big as Marvel. Um, so, so what uh, years are the, is the 10th volume issues from? Uh, the 10th volume is uh, from the mid-80s. I think, I think it's 84 to 85 or 83 to 85. So when I was a kid, I read a Conan comic, and I want to, tell you, I want to see if you've read this one in there yet. I, it oh, might okay. be later than that, actually. Come to think of it, it's probably more like 87. Later but it's, on one, it's one where Conan is, uh, is in a cave full of these evil 
uh, squishy insects. And there's a guy with a bleeding head that's following him around. That's all I remember. I know that can a, describe plenty of Conan comics. A bleeding head or like an ant-type head? The guy that's following him around, he just has this really big head. And there's a lot of gruesome close-ups of the head in the comic. I, I know I'm being very vague in this description. Uh, I so, do not believe I've read that, although I am missing volumes 8 and 9. Sadly, there's only one comic shop in Frankfort, Kentucky, and it's not as well stocked as I'd like it. So there's a there's a two volume gap in my collection. So it could have it could be from that period. I think or it's, it would have been from, from later eighty six to eighty eight, maybe. So that would have been well, later. Sometime I'll have to wait then. for volume eleven then. Very good. Um, oh, cool! I have to have to keep because Marvel, as part of their black and white Marvel Essentials reprints, did one volume of Conan. And that's all they did, uh, as far as the reprints go. But it's nice to see that Dark Horse has picked them up and redone them. Yeah, I mean, and, they're, uh, they're fantastic comics. And come to and, think of it, Dark Horse did the reprint of the Star Wars comics from the 70s and 80s, too. Yeah, and I believe those were Marvel as well. Yep, yep. Pretty cool. All right, well, let's wrap up this episode of SequelCast. Uh, all right. Website is SequelCast.com. Go to Facebook, look up SequelCast. You can talk to us there. And... Um, yeah, that's about it, I, I guess. Uh, send us an email, sequelcast at gmail.com. And we'll be doing Highlander 2, The Quickening, next week. So, oh, yeah. Or until as, next... Or as Richard Dansky calls it, Highlander 2, The Sickening. <laughs> so until next time, this is Matt. And Thrasher. Saying, there Here can only... Here we are, be born, born to, to be kings, kings with the with princes of the, of the universe. universe. Freddie Mercury couldn't have done it better himself. <laughs>